It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Saturday, April 23rd, 2022. I'm Jared Halpern. The White House reinforces Ukraine's military with more likely on the way. 40,000 javelins have flooded into Ukraine and were an absolute game changer in terms of protecting the will to fight by the Ukrainian people. And could a Republican-led Congress rekindle a Biden-McConnell friendship? He said, you know, we expect him to govern in the middle. This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Mass graves, bodies lifeless in the street, bombed out apartment buildings. The images keep emerging day after day in Ukraine. The southern port city of Mariupol has essentially been cut off. Thousands of Ukrainian civilians and fighters in danger of starvation. President Biden recalled those images this week as he described another round of heavy artillery on its way to what he calls the front lines of freedom. This package includes heavy artillery weapons, dozens of howitzers, and 144,000 rounds of ammunition to go with those howitzers. That $800 million package also includes drones and trucks, all tailored, the president says, for a likely fight in the contested Donbass region of eastern Ukraine. More than $3 billion in U.S. military aid has already flowed to Ukraine, and the president says that funding authorized by Congress is running out, and he'll present another budget request to lawmakers next week. To keep weapons and ammunition flowing without interruption. Fox News national security correspondent Jennifer Griffin recently traveled to Ukraine and shares her reporting on how the military aid is being used, how much more is needed in the logistics of getting to the combat zones. I I don't think it is comparable to other wars that I have covered. And I think what is so shocking is that it is taking place in the heart of Europe. And I did cover Kosovo. And mm-hmm. and uh, and so there are some similarities. But what's very different is that you are in a situation where a potential genocide is taking place. And we saw evidence of war crimes while we were there. Uh, we traveled up to Bucha just, you know, days after uh, they had cleared some, the bodies from the streets and talked to residents about what the Russians had done while they were there. Some had lived in their houses and and had left behind booby traps and had uh, taken some of the young men as hostages and, and taken them, uh, you know, back to Russia with them. It, it the the stories and the the uh, the feeling that a Russian missile could land at any time in any part of that country, given the fact that ballistic and cruise missiles, hypersonic missiles are in the Russian arsenal, the fact that people are carrying around gas masks because they're worried about chemical weapons strikes. Um, it was it was a haunting experience. And it was also to think in this day and age, five million refugees have left uh, Ukraine and that Russia is pushing forward to essentially what the, the towns that I saw, the only, co- there were 
comparable aspects to the war in the sense that, you know, the towns that we went into looked like Grozny, which when I lived in Moscow in the 90s, you know, it was, you know, the Russians employed the same tactics of just basically turning whole villages and towns and cities into rubble. Uh, they have no distinction and make no distinction between civilians. That is something that's so different from what we saw in, um, you know, when we've covered wars in the Middle East with, with regards to the U.S. military in Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, you know, those last 20 years of war with the U.S. military, when we've been embedded, you know, you're up against a, a, a terrorist fighting force, but, but not one with an air force. And so, you know, it is a horrible, horrible uh, war that must be stopped. And I came away feeling that the next two to four weeks are going to be absolutely essential in terms of Ukraine being able to stop Russia. And if they are not given the military means to stop Russia in those next in the next month and to win this summer, then the U.S. and NATO and Euro the European Union will be buying into another forever war. You know, I, I want to talk about that next stage, right? I mean, just this week, the the president announced an additional uh, eight hundred million dollars. The Pentagon has detailed that it's howitzers, it's heavy artillery. Uh, this is intended to sort of fight in the eastern part of the country, the Donbas, right? That's the change. I mean, what you saw in Kiev and what was so stunning to me, seeing the carcasses of these burnt out t Russian tanks that had been hit with these Javelin missiles that the U.S. military and the U.S. government has provided to the Ukrainians. I mean, we learned that something like 40,000 Javelins have flooded into Ukraine and were an absolute game changer in terms of protecting the will to fight by the Ukrainian people and the, uh, using these Javelins and the, the strategic way in which they uh, would would take out a, a tank at the beginning. You know, these tanks, you, whoever thought you'd see tank warfare in Europe? I mean, the mm -hmm. images of World War II and the, the flow of people, the targeting of a population, the trying to expunge a population from the map of Europe and to erase the boundaries of a, of a, uh, a country in Europe, you know, it... it the backdrop of World War II was all I could think of while I was there. We went in and out from Poland. We stayed in Krakow. And, of course, with Auschwitz nearby, Oskar Schindler's factory there, and thinking of, of what Europe had gone through and how you never thought you'd see this again. But the fight in the Donbass and in the east, after the Russians had pulled back, not able to achieve what they wanted to and take the capital, Kiev, uh, it's going to be a different fight. It's going to there are it's a flat land. There are fifty thousand Ukrainian troops over there, but there are you know uh, um, you know one hundred and twenty I think uh, uh, battalion tactical groups that the the Russians have in there. So that you're talking one hundred and twenty thousand troops. This is going to be massive land warfare, and they need heavy weaponry. Uh, the javelins and the stingers are are great if they're in the right hands of people. What I came away um, with a greater understanding of is the, the Pentagon just announced, you know, sending another $800 million in military aid. And that's good in the last few weeks, in the last two weeks, 1.6 
billion of military aid has flowed across. But the problem is the U.S. military is not on the ground in Ukraine. And so we sort of uh, dump this military across the border into Ukrainian hands. And the question is the logistics hub that has been set up is an old Soviet logistics model. And if the Ukrainians aren't helped to get that logistics uh, infrastructure up to speed, this is a war of logistics. And we saw how bad Russian logistics were, and that's why they lost the battle for Kiev. But if the U.S. and NATO and other European allies do not help the Ukrainians set up a better logistics system to get those really high-tech weapons up to the right frontline units who've been trained on them, then all of this money, all of this effort of getting weapons into Ukraine will come to naught. So how do you do that without actually having NATO U.S. troops in theater? Well, I think there are some partner forces. Remember, the the NATO trained 2,000 uh, Ukrainian special operations forces. They have been kind of sidelined in some ways and not used to the best of their ability because they're the ones who were trained on the javelins, the sp- switchblades, the, uh, the stingers. And those units, we talked to commanders who hadn't received the stingers. They would be sitting underneath, you know, Russian, uh, the Russian Air Force and saying, if I just had a stinger, uh, I could bring down these planes. Uh, So integrating the Ukrainian uh, special operations forces better, having them, empowering them and getting them the the more high-tech weaponry, I think is going to be a good first step. Uh, Right now, we learned today that the U.S. is going to be training 50 Ukrainian military Mm -hmm. advisors inside, across the border, uh, outside of Ukraine, but in Europe. Uh, Those, you know, it'll be the train, the trainer model and getting those trainers in there with the weapon systems and and coordinating that, I saw some very effective humanitarian aid groups who had set up, you know, pipelines to get humanitarian aid in. If we could do the same thing and use the same uh, model for the military aid, I think things could be a little bit more efficient. I know people are thinking about it right now, but it needed to happen a few weeks ago. So there's a real race against the clock right now. I know the Pentagon is focused on it, but it's it's coming a little bit late. And a lot of uh, there's some of the weapons, uh, you know, the Pentagon has never delivered weapons this quickly to a war zone. And in fact, you you have examples that they provide us where, you know, from the time that President Biden signs a paper 48 hours later, weapons are landing uh, on the border with Ukraine and, and being handed off. That's amazing. But you've got to make sure those specialized weapons, now that you're sending in uh, howitzers that take, you know, that have computers in them and, and need some training, that they are are married up with the right units. And and uh, there are people on the ground who, uh, U.S., you know, trainers who know how to do this. And it's just about, you know, moving the big bureaucracy that is, was inherited from the Soviet Union that is the logistics sort of nightmare that Ukraine has on the ground. You mentioned the howitzers, the, the, the types of tactical drones that are also being uh, sent to Ukraine. You know, the U.S., particularly in the last few weeks, has been very clear about this is what we are sending and, and this is how much of it we're sending. Is that a signal that the U.S. sort of views um, the Russian threat maybe differently? I know that early on there was a concern that, listen, we don't want to do anything that's sort of 
sh- you know, crosses sort of a line and, and could provoke Russia. Has that line moved? Is it blurrier now? Is there I sort think of a it's sense? a lot blurrier. Yeah. yeah, I think it's moved a lot. I mean, in the early days, you heard some pretty hard lines of defensive weaponry and and there was, uh, you know, they were sending in helmets and body armor, which are needed. Uh, mm-hmm. Don't get me wrong. Uh, and, but, but there was a concern about escalation, as I recall. Yeah, there was a greater concern. I think the surprise that the Russian military, uh, A, didn't take Kiev in the first 48 to 72 hours. B, they've not been, their combined arms usage and in combining the way their uh, military fights from the air, uh, there's no coordination. So they may have some uh, very sophisticated weaponry, but it's not coordinated. They're not communicating. And I think that, that there's a realization that the Ukrainians, you know, they perform, they overperformed in terms of stopping the Russian military in its attempt to take the capital, and I think there was a, 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 a an awakening, an awakening that with the right weaponry, this this Ukrainian military could actually win. And I don't think there was that feeling uh, at the start of this on the eve of February twenty fourth, uh, when the Russian invasion began. And so that has caused, I think, a lot of uh, it's it's really inspired a lot of NATO countries to step up and deliver increasingly lethal aid and to speak about. It because the Russians mm-hmm. can't seem to do anything to stop it. And so it's, you know, you would have thought these would have been uh, secret. It would have been the West would have been more secretive about providing weapons. But in fact, they want the Russians to know that these javelins, you know, it creates a, a bit of fear in the minds of, I think, the Russian military. There's there there's a very important, you know, the information space is important, the intelligence sharing, the uh, the striking behind enemy lines, the, the way the Ukrainians have been able to hit the supply lines. It, it's been fascinating to watch and to see it from the ground when I was there. The one thing I thought we could just that the U.S., NATO and European allies could help with is that. They could help with some of those logistics on the ground and just getting that flow uh, that would in- help increase the flow of the weapons, even though, you know, the U.S. has signed off on billions of dollars in aid. Uh, there's just there's a little bit of a bottleneck taking place with some some of the warehousing that's taking place in Lviv. And um, and they they need to not be warehousing this stuff. They need to be sending it straight up to the front lines. What's the Pentagon assessment? Has it changed at all over the last couple of weeks on what the the strategic goals here of of Putin and, and the Russian military are? The strategic goals for the Russian military, I think the jury's still out. I think most people still think that Putin will not stop with the Donbass, but he uh, he had a tactical retreat away from the capital, Kiev. But there was a real sense when I was there that uh, if the Ru- that the Russians would be coming back, not only into Bucha and Bordyanka and Irpin, but also to the capital. And so nobody is resting thinking that Putin has now a, a limited aim, but he does. He is in a race against the clock because May 9th is very important to him with the uh, parade on Red Square where he'd like to announce some sort of victory uh, in the East. Uh, he's unlikely to be able to achieve those goals by May 9th, but he's going to, it's going to be very bloody and very uh, brutal in the meantime. And so 
you know, I think there's a feeling that, again, the fighting in the next few weeks, I mean, the fact that the Ukrainians are still holding on the Azov battalion in, in, in Mariupol, uh, the fact that that, even though Putin declared that Mariupol uh, has now fallen to Russia, that's not the assessment of the Pentagon. And there are still hundreds of fighters holed up in that Azov steel factory. Uh the, you know, the fight for Mariupol will go down as, you know, Stalingrad, the battle for Stalingrad. Right. And if they can hold on every day that the Ukrainian military can hold on, it stymies uh, Putin's plans. Jennifer, I appreciate your your time and, and honestly, your reporting. It is extraordinarily important work that, that you and other journalists are doing over there. It is dangerous work. Uh, it is courageous work. And I thank you for doing it for us. Thank you, Jared. Congress is back from its spring recess, and if you heard our episode last Saturday, you already know how many members of Congress spent their time away. There were trips overseas to the southern border, many of those bipartisan ventures. Later this month, the White House Correspondents Center returns for the first time since the pandemic. President Biden is attending. A bunch of lawmakers will be there, too. And already over the last few weeks, other traditional black tie Washington galas have returned. From afar, it may not seem like that big a deal. After all, events have been attracting big crowds around the country now for weeks or months. But my colleague covering Capitol Hill, Fox News congressional correspondent Chad Pergram, says this new time spent outside the Capitol building could signal more than pre-pandemic norms. It could be the start of some bipartisan breaking down of political barriers. I'm going to be very clear about how business gets done in Washington uh, and any place else, whether you work in banking or real estate or sports. It gets done through relationships. And if you have people, uh, members of Congress who don't really know each other, you know, there's been a big influx of new members who've come in in the past two Congresses here. You know, it, it wasn't very long that you had group uh, the group that came in in 2018 and they were impeaching the president. And then the pandemic hit halfway through. And then this group that came in in 2020, you know, they were still in the throes of the pandemic. And then a riot happened, which really didn't do wonders for comedy between the, the two sides. That's comedy with a T. Uh, and and so then they now, impeach the president again. Yes. So so here we are. So it, it's really maybe early 2019 in congressional time, Jared, and t- maybe time for a reset. And what has been happening, as you allude to, there's been the gridiron dinner, White House Correspondents Dinner coming up soon, radio TV dinner. You're starting to have members of Congress get out and about with one another. And that is how they build trust and build relationships. As I have always said, one of the worst things for getting things done in Washington that was ever invented was the jet airplane. However, <laughs> the flip side of that is, is that one of the best things that was ever created to get things done in Washington was the jet airplane. And the reason is because you didn't really have members of Congress traveling together on, as you say, these CODELs, congressional delegation. That's the, the language that we're talking here in Washington, where they decide to go to the border, they decide to go to Eastern Europe, Slovakia, Poland, maybe even a couple of members have gone into Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Uh, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi was supposed to go to Asia and Taiwan. And But what happens on these trips, it, it's the unquantifiable factor that is most important. Yes, you go there. And back in the 70s and 80s, a lot of these trips were derided as junkets. They would send them to a beach somewhere and they might have one symposium, but a lot of time at the at the at the pool bar and a lot of time on the squash court. You know, so there was a lot of that. That doesn't happen as much anymore. 
Members go because they have to figure out, okay, what are the facts on the ground in Ukraine? What are the facts that that our troops uh, under the aegis of NATO are dealing with here? What do they need? Uh, What types of weapons do they need? What is the situation at the border? And there is sometimes a little bit of photo op to this. You know, if you're a Republican, it's really good to go to the border and say, look how bad the Biden administration has been about the border. And you're for a moderate Democrat like Mark Kelly uh, from Arizona or Maggie Hassan from New Hampshire, two senators with competitive reelection bids. You go to the border and say, we disagree with what the administration is doing. And so you build some real estate in between what uh, the administration is doing and what your policy is. But also then there's all that time in between. You are sitting on an airplane with somebody who you don't really know, flying to Poland, Slovakia, flying to Arizona. uh, And then after the day's events, you go downstairs and you go to the hotel bar. And there's that same member of Congress who you didn't really know before. And Mark Green, Republican congressman from Tennessee, I spoke with him a few days ago, and he really put it best. He said, you know, you're starting to talk to somebody on the airplane about their kids and their family and their college experiences. And that starts to build trust. In fact, I talked to Brad Fitch from the Congressional Management Foundation about this a couple of days ago. And he said, you know, he had actually seen deals cut on the plane, legislative (laughs) agreements, you know, because you're sitting there on some 12 hour flight back from Asia or someplace. And so, yes, that does help. And, And the other thing that it does help is members, you know, it's one thing to sit in Washington and read a briefing book. It's another thing to get on the ground somewhere by the border, Eastern Europe, Uh, Australia, Asia, wherever it is, India, we've had members go to all these places, kick the tires, breathe it in and understand because they're like, you know, I I just saw this thing happen. And that, you know, made the words on the page and the briefing book come alive to me. So that's an important component in all this. And Jared, that's, uh, you know, again, so members, they sit and they talk on the plane, they talk in the hotel bar. And it's not like they come back to Washington and fix the problem right away. But over time, you start to build those relationships. And that is how they do address problems. And there's been almost none of that for the past two and a half years. Yeah, no, it's a good point. I remember speaking right before he retired to the late Congressman Dingell. And I asked him, you know, what had changed in his view in the House of Representatives. He'd been serving, what, since the 50s or 60s. Um, And he said, he said, we're not here anymore. He said, you know, you come in for a Monday night, you're leaving Thursday afternoon. He said, you know, we we used to back in the day spend the, you know, months here at a time. You'd you'd see each other on the weekends, Republicans and Democrats, you know, you'd have events together. And that has disappeared largely in, in Washington. And he was sort of lamenting that fact that it is harder now uh, to, to do some things because, uh, to your point, you know, you're only, if you're a member of Congress, maybe in Washington, three and a half, four days at a stretch. You know, there's something to be said for that. And also, some people do kind of gild the lily a little bit about those good old days in Washington. <laughs> I'm sure they, uh, they, they, they You know, so, I mean, they were just, if you read the books, you know, they were just at each other's throats as much as they are now. Different topic, different time. Right. Okay, fine. But... Congressman Dingell had a point, and I remember doing a very similar interview with him in about 2006 or 2007, and he went and talked to Jerry Ford, you know, who then had become the Republican leader mm-hmm. in the House from Michigan, later vice president, of course, president. And he said, what should I do? And you got to remember, you know, John Dingell's family, his dad, you know, had been in Congress. He said, mm-hmm. you know, move your family to Washington. And he talked about he told me the story about how they literally and this is the 50s. They, they got the kids on the train. They moved to Washington and so on and so forth. But that, you know, because members are always being rushed around the country, rushed around the globe. 
people here walking around in masks so you didn't really know who one another you know were you didn't want to get too close to them because of the pandemic uh you know democrats were very suspect of of a lot of the republicans who voted against certification of the Mm -hmm. election and so they really didn't want to talk to those folks and frankly some of the republicans didn't want to talk to the democrats because they thought their ideas were too extreme and, and and their criticisms of former president trump were too much okay we can hash those things out but that's those are the realities and this is the the thought process on in washington dc right now but because they weren't talking at all nothing i mean i mean there wasn't hasn't been a lot that got done here i mean yeah they got the infrastructure bill mm-hmm. okay but and this is why i used that term a few moments ago unquantifiable you don't know uh what's going to happen you know tom harkin the democratic center from iowa told me one time he said, you know, that what would happen is you would have if you had a relationship with somebody, they could come and tell you, you know, I, I'm with you on this issue, but this particular amendment. And here's why I can't vote on this amendment, because how it affects what I've campaigned on or what it does to an industry in my district or state. In other words, they don't stab you in the back. They stab you in the front. You know, And, and that that was so much more, you know, people understood one another because then, you know, the next time Senator Harkin or somebody else is going to be in that same position some reason why they couldn't vote for their friend's bill or amendment. And but if you have that relationship, you understand. And sometimes there's some horse. Well, what if I did this? What if we change these words? Okay, yeah, that works. That's how business gets done in Washington. Let me ask you about that aspect, because you you covered President Biden when he was Senator Biden. Did he have that relationship with with a lot of Republicans? And if so, why is it so hard now? Well, the amazing thing is that he was pretty tight with Lindsey Graham. You know, who a lot of people think Mm -hmm. for political reasons uh, has gone and kind of turned on the president, uh, was very upset about the fact that he did not nominate Michelle Childs from South Carolina to the Supreme Court and instead went with Ketanji Brown Jackson. Okay, and and, kind of, you know, was able to use that as a wedge issue between himself and the president, has been critical about certain things with Ukraine. And some of that's natural that you just use the other side as a foil. Okay, fine. A lot of people think on the Republican side that the president should be governing more in the middle anyway because he's got a scant majority in the Senate, a scant majority in the House, and then you try to do Build Back Better. Okay, that there's a reason why that bill has not passed, and and it's because it's too liberal for the makeup of the House of Representatives right. and the Senate. The other one who he was completely tight with. And this is really interesting. And I did a TV piece about this after it was clear that the president had won in the fall of 2020 is the Senate Republican leader, Mitch McConnell. Well, they cut deals when he was vice president. He was, Absolutely. You know, Biden was always sent to the Hill to kind of like, you know, was it the, the debt, the debt limit, the deficit crisis? He was up here all the yeah. time. Absolutely. Yeah. But 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 the thing I remember the most, and this was kind of the germ of the piece that I did on the television side, Jared, was going back through some of the old tape of, of Biden and McConnell and specifically in the last few days of his term as vice president, he came to Capitol Hill to preside over the Senate in his mm-hmm. role as president of the Senate. So this is December of 2016, going to be in office just about another month and change. And they were doing this uh, this health care bill that dealt with cancer and, and research mm-hmm. and everything else. And McConnell, specifically on the floor, moved that they change the title of the bill that dealt with cancer or the portion of the bill that dealt with cancer to name it after Bo Biden, mm-hmm. who is the son who succumbed to brain cancer. And Senator Biden, Vice President Biden, then at that time, at the time, was literally wiping away tears as mm-hmm. he presided from the dais. And 
Then the next day, Biden came back to the Capitol again. And this was where McConnell and others on both sides kind of spoke, you know, and the thing that struck me in that conversation uh, in that debate on the Senate floor, Jared, was that Mitch McConnell called him Joe. Well, Joe, this Joe, that Hmm. and kind of joked with him, said, you know, well, as the you know, as presiding over the Senate president, of the Senate, you know, he's going to have to sit here and listen to all of us. You know, when you preside, you don't really talk unless it's right. parliamentary instructions and recognizing people here and there. And so you don't really participate in the debate. And, and McConnell was kind of elbowing uh, Vice President Biden at that stage. You know, you're going to have to sit here and listen to all of us because usually we have to sit and listen to you. You know, uh, 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 so, you know, I mean, you look at that relationship. How does that relationship now translate? Let's fast forward maybe to. You know, January, maybe, you know, Mitch McConnell is now the majority leader, at least if you look at certain polling right now, that seems to be more likely than not. How does that translate then to how a a Republican led Congress governs with uh, a President Biden here in the White House? It would be, you know, very tough to see the Democrats, uh, you know, if they lose the the majority here, uh, being able to do much of anything and certainly President Biden pitching anything that he wants that would adhere to the left wing of his caucus. Uh, he's going to have to govern in the middle. That probably but he's already help got him. that relationship. I mean, does that relationship with with McConnell help that along? Did you see that relationship? It, it probably does. It probably does. Mitch McConnell is a pragmatist. And he has said and he said it in Kentucky just the other day uh, at a stop. He said, you know, we expect him to govern in the middle. And mm-hmm. so if you put things out that are in the middle and, you know, even if the, uh, you know, the, we hear different things about the House races. Uh, a lot of people actually think rather than being 30, 40 seats, if the Republicans win, it might be much closer than that. It might not be five or six seats. But the Senate is probably going to be two seats either way, even if it flips to the Republicans. Seats, yeah. two to th- it's yeah. going to be pretty narrow. And so, again, what do you have to do? You have to govern in the middle. And does President Biden get some chits by governing in the middle, doing some bipartisan things? Now, the, the trick for him, if he is faced with a minority of his party in the House and Senate in 2023 and 2024, you know, it's not like if he governs more from the middle, the Republicans say, hey, you know what, Joe, you're great. Yeah, that's fa- fabulous. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, no, they continue the attack and, and Hunter's laptop. And what are you yeah, doing about yeah. Title 42? I mean, they, you know, this continues. Uh, th- they don't back off. But it does respond to some of that that those pragmatic concerns. I mean, they're going to have to deal with some serious stuff in 2023. They're mm-hmm. going to have to raise the debt ceiling. How do you keep the government open? If Kevin mm-hmm. McCarthy is the minority leader in the House of Representatives and you have people like Paul Gosar and Marjorie Taylor Greene who won't vote for any of those things, mm-hmm. you know, do you cobble together this coalition somewhere in the middle with some Democrats and some Republicans? And, and it's probably on the right a more uh, you know, curbing to the right pro-MAGA uh, conference, mm-hmm. frankly, uh, mm-hmm. how do they govern if all they are is, you know, they, they seem to be really good at attacking the president. OK, fine. But how do you govern then? And how do you govern across the aisle with the president when maybe the full faith and credit of the United States is on the line when they come up to this debt ceiling or government shutdown or, or frankly, more COVID money. You know, the pandemic is not going Mm -hmm. to go away. They're going to have to continue to spend money on that. Or there's an international crisis. They're dealing with Ukraine still, Russia, Taiwan, China, something unforeseen that we haven't discussed here. Uh, You know, know, there is a a degree of governing. It just can't be lobbing mud at the wall and talking about CRT and the laptop of his other son. Well, let's finish with the agenda as Congress returns here in the next few days. Is it COVID in Ukraine? Is that going to be the the bulk of what what lawmakers are dealing with? Well, you're 
you're looking at something that they have to deal with. They have to get this COVID bill done somehow, mm-hmm. or you know, every that time everybody goes in that's to get tied to Title Forty Two, right, yeah. a test or therapeutics or a vaccine, you're going to have to pay it, and that's going to be a problem. So, and also that what they want to do is maybe some international money in there too, because most of these variants come from overseas. The other thing that might be attached to that is more aid for Ukraine and probably address the border in some fashion, maybe even if it's just a a, a symbolic vote that Republicans want to say, look, this is a bad policy. And frankly, more and more Democrats are saying this is a bad policy, rescinding Title 42. The one thing that is on the docket is weed in the Senate. Remember, they passed this bill in the House (laughs) of Representatives. Yes, they cannabis, as they might say. They passed this bill to delist cannabis uh, on the Federal Registry Mm -hmm. of Controlled Substances. It's not going to get through the Senate. It will get some ostensibly some bipartisan support here. But this is going to be the criticism of Republicans saying you're not dealing with the border. You're not dealing with uh, inflation or gasoline prices or the supply chain. What are you talking about? Weed. And that's going to be one of the first issues up come the end of the month. We'll uh, have all of that uh, going forward. So, Chad, enjoy the rest of what's left of recess and we'll uh, we'll talk soon. Tomorrow on the Fox News Rundown from Washington, after a federal judge lifted a nationwide mask mandate on air travel and public transit, we discuss what steps Americans should take, if any, with former U.S. Surgeon General Dr. Jerome Adams. And Jessica Rosenthal talks with Dr. Oz, fresh off his endorsement from former President Trump in a much-anticipated Pennsylvania Senate race. Until then, I'm Jared Halpern. Thanks for listening to the Fox News Rundown. From Washington. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four term U.S. Congressman from South Carolina brings you a one of a kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.